Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Why do we go on pilgrimage? For an educational vacation? To get in touch with the past? To walk barefoot to a shrine? Or to encounter a saint? To ask for a miracle? And why, if Christians are going to go on pilgrimage anywhere, do they go on pilgrimage so often to England? Yes, yes, it is a magical land full of meat pies, forests, fairies, supposedly, and saints with a distinctly British flavor. And we love England. But how do our expectations of England, especially for Anglophiles, meet and answer in the actual place when we go there as pilgrims? Because to go on a pilgrimage is about expectation in a lot of ways. Think of the Canterbury Tales. They went the holy, blissful martyr for to seek. To be a pilgrim means to hope for something. In the Middle Ages, when pilgrims would come from all over Europe to the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor in Westminster Abbey, they would kneel inside a cavity carved out of the brilliantly decorated stone sepulcher to get as close to Edward's bones as they could. And before leaving, they would chip off a tiny bit of mosaic from the sepulcher as a souvenir. And so today the tomb is almost all stone, not much mosaic. And needless to say, taking bits of the shrine away is now a no-no. But you can still see here and there chips of red, blue, brilliant gold. We go on pilgrimage to stand somewhere in the broken and colorful light of Christian history and to take away souvenirs be they answered prayers or cool vintage prayer books. And we certainly bring expectations. So today's episode is a story about expectations and souvenirs, the hoped for and the found, on an English pilgrimage with a diverse set of American Anglicans. Anglophiles, beware. You may get more than you bargained for. I am now on the outbound flight to London and we're about to take off and I am so excited and hoping that everything goes well with everyone landing that we start things off on the right foot on the pilgrimage 
Um, but I, I've had to tell myself the past few days to calm down or I'm going to make myself sick. I'm so excited. Here we go. Flight attendants prepare doors for departure from second on Chapter 1. Henry VIII got around. I expected a lot from England. I expected a lot of pastries and cakes. I expected a certain love connection between myself and the land. I expected a lot of sheep. Let me start with something I did not expect. Henry VIII and how he taught me how not to pursue Christian unity. Okay, let's start at Hampton Court Palace. Throughout the dozens of rooms of this palace, where Henry VIII, his wives, Elizabeth I, and King James I hung out, I could almost smell the pigs roasting on spits in fireplaces the size of small barns. I could almost hear Shakespeare and his actors rehearsing A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I couldn't go anywhere without being reminded that this was a place that had been Christianized already for about a millennium. It was also my first taste of what Christian monarchy might mean. For example, whatever Henry was up to in his romantic machinations, political maneuverings, or religious switcheroos, and however he turned history often violently on these decisions, I realized he was surrounded constantly, intentionally, by religious art. Stained glass, tapestries, a chapel, sharing a dinner bench with cardinals, Hampton Court Palace was the first place I saw this, scripture and sacraments as an integral part of the daily life of a head of state, intentionally embedded there. What effect can this have on a country, on a church? Fellow pilgrim Father Paul Lilly from Hawaii remarked on the interesting interplay of church and state that he noticed in the UK and how it differs from our own in the US. I think in our country many times when we see church and state working together, we're very suspicious. Whereas it seems in some ways in England, church and state, there's a sense that it can work together positively. That, that the church is really there to serve the community and there's not that suspicion always that I think we sometimes find in our own country. That'll be part of my exploration for my time in England. Before dinner, which by the way included a steak and ale pie that has yet to be surpassed, Mark Michael, the interim director of the Living Church, and myself chatted for a minute about what we saw in Hampton Court Palace about this very thing. So all over Hampton Court Palace, there are these beautiful, enormous tapestries hanging on the walls, almost all of them of biblical scenes. So scenes from the lives of the patriarchs, important episodes from the book of Acts about the spread of the mission of the church. And I think in various ways, those themes are chosen to illustrate the hopes of the monarch as being a a Christian ruler who would demonstrate the kind of spiritual leadership of the prophets, the hope that the church would be fruitful in mission as the early church had been. It's really striking to kind of go into the throne room and in the third apartments and to see the two tapestries are the stoning of Stephen and the conversion of St. Paul. The sense that in all times, times of abundance and times of, of deep challenge, the mission of the church continues to thrive. The gospel's message can speak to people in power, even if it's just through fabric. 
When it comes to the medium, art and beauty seem to have a special place somehow, and they have for a long time. Now, whether kings listen, whether they resist, whether they act or react is another question. What happens when a king is in charge of a church? Another question you're going to ask yourself in England. Let's take one path along that question. It's really hard to overstate what a difference it makes to be in a place where the Protestant Reformation happened and was funded with official coin. It makes a difference to see the aftermath of a revolution, is what I'm getting at, even if you believe that the results were worth it. As we started making our way around various Anglican read Protestant cathedrals and churches, I noticed tour guides saying things like, Unfortunately, Henry VIII came in and destroyed this priceless medieval rood screen. And when Henry VIII smashed all the stained glass in the western windows, we didn't replace it until the 18th century, as if Henry rode in on his horse and did it himself. Such injuries are personal. They're lasting. And so I began to wonder if churches are slower to change in places that have suffered the costs of forceful reformation. We went to one church Henry didn't seem to get his gauntlets on, the parish church of St. Peter and St. Paul in I, Suffolk. We've just had a long ride through the countryside, and we've landed in a small town called I, E-Y-E, and we're taking a look at the bell tower of a church that is enormous for the size of the town. And the reason this church is here is that in the 14th and 15th centuries, this area of the country got pretty wealthy from the wool trade. So we're just going in to meet the church warden, who's going to give us some refreshments, some tea and biscuits, and show us around. Church warden Mrs. Pinky Palmer met us with tea and biscuits and invited us to have a stroll around the church, and particularly to check out the rood screen. Let me tell you what a rood screen is. Rood screens are highly decorative screens used in Western Christianity, not totally unlike an iconostasis in Eastern Christianity, that would separate the congregation from the choir and the high altar. At its top, near the ceiling, would be a crucifix, a rood, and often the Virgin Mary and saints flanking the cross. God's word becomes incarnated in things, the beauty and richness of ecclesial art, which can become our teachers, and sometimes our tempters. The Reformation didn't not have a point. Henry VIII dispatched and allowed Protestant reformers to destroy so many rude screens across the country that very few in England survive intact today. And this was one of the few. I want you to have a look at it. Another remarkable thing about this church, other than having a warden who has the most perfect name in the world for a church warden, is that it still has a rood screen, a medieval rood screen, which maybe by some miracle was preserved and not destroyed during the Protestant Reformation. It's absolutely remarkable. This kind of, the colors are still vivid, uh, blues and greens and reds, and behind it all, this gold, the warm gold of an icon. And above it all, a magnificent crucifix. This is one of the most beautiful things we've seen so far. And again, very warm, very intimate, as well as magnificent. 
It was like finding in an old house that had been burned down and rebuilt an original door that led to a different time, a medieval, a Catholic England. Though the Reformation gave birth to the Church of England, the Episcopal Church, and Anglican churches around the world, the Catholic side of England isn't gone, nor is the Catholic side of Anglicanism. And thanks be to God, right? There are places and spaces where rude screens are still intact, both literally and figuratively. Walsingham, England is one such place. Yes, as in, some of you will have heard of her, Our Lady of Walsingham. So let me tell you who she is. She's the Virgin Mary, okay? And in the year of our Lord, 1061, an English noblewoman named Richeldus had a vision of the house in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And the Virgin Mary appeared and asked her to build a replica of the house called the Holy House in Walsingham. We're just coming into Walsingham and we're walking up these small narrow streets with houses and shops on either side gardens in bloom people walking with their families walking their dogs i was enchanted by walsingham what better time i ask you to consider the mother of our lord than a gorgeous may day with the sun shining and sheep bleeding in a nearby field also i had the best cream tea with lemon rose scones and great company in a tea shop where you were just waiting to see Mrs. Weasley pop in for a cuppa. But in my enchantment, I realized that one Christian's souvenir rosary can be another Christian's question mark. Picnicking under the arch of a monastic ruin, all that's left of a monastery there after Henry VIII came in with a demolition crew, I wondered about the Christians who were all in, loving, Every genuflection, every moment with the monstrance, every flick of holy water. Catholics, Anglicans, Orthodox in the same place, though, full disclosure, at separate shrines. And I thought of other Christians for whom this would be a stretch, if not theologically concerning. The family tensions that we have, Protestant, Catholic, they still exist. But they are family tensions, family conversation that's still happening. And a place like Walsingham is important, partly because it stands as a witness that we both need places to celebrate the gifts God has given us, but also to remember that all is not yet well, and that we can't discard those who disagree with us about what God has revealed. Pilgrim Michael Casey, a Presbyterian minister in training, spoke to this after the service that he and I attended together. I think that the, the whole idea of coming and having high mass and experiencing the mass in a completely different fashion in worship, and actually I've, quite frankly, I've experienced worship in many different faith traditions, whether it be Baptist, whether it be Reformed Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, Orthodox Christianity. I think that it broadens my perspective and allows me to be able to better understand how we as human beings who worship the Holy God can better understand how, how we can have a connection with God and learning from each other and just being there to work against the affliction, the bigotry and conflict that plagues our world, making our world a more affirming, broad-minded and caring place of all of God's children. Yes, we still need time and space to understand one another. 
and to find healing from the wounds of the past. And we need places to gather where we can say together, my soul magnifies the Lord. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Chapter 2, Great and Small The first stop that we've made today is to Windsor Castle. There are so many extraordinary things that I've noticed about England and its history and its religious life so far, but one of the things that strikes me is this two different kinds of spaces for worship. There's the, the grand space, the open space, the vaulted ceilings, the gorgeous, awe-inspiring spaces that, that lift your eyes up. But then there are also these really small nooks and crannies. There's a personality characteristic of England and maybe of Anglicanism that I want to describe to you, and you may know it already. For every splendid thing, there is a small, sweet little correlative. Like for every column of fan vaulting, hand-carved 80 feet in the air, there's a tiny carving of a fox or a mouse or a little sprig of ivy. For every cathedral, there's a chapel. For every church tomb that contains a celebrity, a saint, or martyr, there's a parish tea that needs to set up tables over the gravestones. And don't worry if you spill, they'll just mop up later. Grandeur and intimacy, splendor and warmth, the big and the small, have this connection, this dance, even a tension in England that I think contributes directly to the superb English gift for coziness and thus contributes to the Anglophilia so many of us suffer from. But I think it also has spiritual significance. Example one, what can happen when grandeur doesn't stay grounded? If you've never been to Oxford, how do I describe it to you? 
shall I say, Oxford is as a city built at one with itself. No, that's a bit dramatic. But the city of letters and learning built around its 12th century university does have an utterly unique and captivating, almost overwhelming beauty. And Christianity is in the air of this place. It's in the cobblestones. This was a part of Englishness I was dying to experience. Faith and learning on such a grand scale embodied in a place so deeply. I ate my heart out, guys. If you ever go to the city of Dreaming Spires, you have to book a ticket to go on top of the tower at St. Mary's Church. If you can wend your way up the stone steps for a 360-degree view, the spires are like dribbled white sandcastle turrets or spikes of frozen ice cream. The buildings, the bells, the green hills surrounding, the winding medieval streets and alleys. Why is it called the city of dreaming spires? Not because I think the city is sleepy, even with its punting boats and used bookshops, but because I think of all the dreams of those who have gone here. It's a city full of pilgrims, in a way, who might stay two years or four or six to get their degrees. Nine centuries of expectations amid the ghosts of others, enmeshed in a thick legacy of beauty and knowledge. Oxford weaves a spell. But on top of the tower, overlooking it all, you see Oxford's spell, but also its smallness in the surrounding landscape, its power and its limits. In Oxford, I ran into Zach Giuliano, one of our covenant writers and chaplain and research fellow at St. Edmund Hall, an interim presenter at Christchurch. We tucked into a little pub and talked a bit about the Anglican beauty that we love to love, the way it can shape a place spiritually as well as its contradictions and its dangers. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like working in Christian Disneyland. Everything is beautiful all the time. And there are a lot of kind of immaculately phrased choirs you can go listen to constantly. This is a place where the establishment of the Church of England is perhaps the most visible and resented. Uh, so you are simultaneously overseeing some of the most successful churches in the country, uh, some of the places where the faith has the most obvious, visible impact on every part of life, and yet also one of the places where people are most uncomfortable with that fact and would like to see the whole thing burnt down to the ground and re rebuilt around something else. So, you know, you have to bear those contradictions while you're doing the work, and it, it makes for quite interesting moments, I'll just say. Grandeur and groundedness, transcendent beauty and humility. The church at its most effective has both. And I think you can hear this in a nutshell in church bells. You hear church bells all over England. It is a beautiful sound. There's a detective novel by Dorothy Sayers called The Nine Tailors, in which Lord Peter Whimsey gets a crash course in the beauty and physics of church bells. And what are church bells for? to call the village to church, to announce a funeral or a wedding or a New Year's celebration. In England, these grand bells have cute nicknames. Big Ben is the name of the bell, not the name of the tower. Gifts of art, culture, literature, choral music, what are they all for? 
for serving the small, maybe, the ordinary, for calling us back home in a sense. The sacraments themselves involve this mysterious interplay between the great and the small. And sometimes this is embodied in an entire place. I think we experienced that on our visit to Little Gidding and its parish church, an old barn turned into a chapel by Nicholas Ferrer and his family in the mid-1620s. It became a little Anglican community out in the country, so known for its life of prayer and discipline that it was befriended by King Charles I and George Herbert, and later on even inspired T.S. Eliot so much that, of course, one of his four quartets is named after it. Okay, right. Hi, I'm Fiona Brampton, and I'm part of my work is chaplain to Little Gidding. It's a wonderful um, experience and a chance to say uh, to the church in general, there's a place for introverts. Because so often churches are are posts that are for people who are extrovert and doing all kinds of of wild and wacky things. And and this is really a place for people to come and be quiet Mm. and to find God. And so quite a lot of my ministry here is, is allowing people to have the space and the space to find find God in their way. Um, I know that T.S. Eliot came and wrote wonderful words about this place, but actually he didn't have any wonderful words to go on, he just came and found it. Mm. And I think each person has to come and find, find how God is speaking to them here. And that's different for many people. And, and so much of my work is just gently allowing people to be able to find find a living God uh, in their lives in this place of calm and quiet and peace. Now let's take a walk. Actually, scratch that. Let's take a coach. Way too far to walk. Because we're going to move from this special place, not grand in scale perhaps, but in significance, and we're going to go to Windsor Castle, specifically to St. George's Chapel at Windsor, where Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II was laid to rest a few months ago. Queen Elizabeth, as many of you know, I'm sure, took her role as a monarch seriously as a Christian calling. Remarkably, British monarchs are still anointed with holy oil by a priest invoking the Holy Spirit to help them serve, to be a blessing to the ordinary life of their people. And here in St. George's Chapel, after paying my respects to Her Late Majesty, I found yet another sign, this time an architectural one, of this fascinating interplay between the great and the small. I've just passed the tomb of Queen Elizabeth And I'm looking up and I'm seeing this gorgeous, intricate, fluted carving in the ceiling. Almost immediately on your right is this very tiny, probably nine feet by three feet, enclosed private prayer space. On the walls are what look like these medieval paintings, a chapel ceiling in miniature. But these, these rich colors, gold leaf, dark wood, intricate work in wood and stone, and the way that they create both these large open 
awe-inspiring spaces, but these same materials are used and scaled down to create these tiny nooks for prayer and worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Part two of the UK Retrospective comes out in two weeks, and we'll talk about how small places, a prayer chapel, a village, the constraints of a challenging job, produce so many saints. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your jet-setting host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.